If you would please take your Bibles and open to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This period of time has a lot of significant dates here at our church at Melrose. Yesterday, the 8th, was uh, Ruth's mom's birthday. She would have been 91. Today is Ben and Becca's 7th anniversary. Uh, Tomorrow is Ruth's son Neil's birthday. The next day, the 11th, is Gia's mom's birthday. She would have been 94. The 12th, Wednesday, is my birthday. The 13th is Zaldi's death anniversary. It's been eight years since the Lord took him. And then next Sunday, the 16th, Jalen Tin Nobly, Kim's new baby, will be one month old. The 12th has added significance for me beyond being my birthday. It was 44 years ago that I first met with a group of believers in a house that included Dan and Lonnie. We formed a house church. All these years later, 44 years later, we are the church on Melrose. It's a testimony to God's grace and Dan and Lonnie's faithfulness. So with all of this in mind, I've been thinking quite a bit about time the various issues that come up with it and what the scripture has to say about it. Let me just say here at the beginning of the series, uh, unlike a paper where I can have footnotes or endnotes, a sermon doesn't usually have those, there are two books that have really uh, helped me in this. Uh, one is Os Guinness's new book, Carpe Diem Redeemed. And the other is by a man named Alexander Smayman, For the Life of the World. There is a Chinese proverb that tells us If you want to know what water is, the fish is the last thing to ask. Because it is their environment. It's everything about them. And for us as human beings, we are so immersed in time that we really aren't able to look at it and understand it objectively. Time is at the heart of our existence. As Schmemann puts it, time is indeed the icon of our fundamental reality. Time is the only reality of life Yet it is a strangely non-existent reality. It constantly dissolves life in a past which no longer is and in a future which always leads to death. All generations, all philosophers have always been aware of this anxiety of time, of its paradox. All philosophy is ultimately an attempt to solve the problem of time. What is time? Well, people have tried to come up with answers, some of them clever, not some not so. Um, In a recent book, When Einstein Walked with Godel, Excursions to the Edge of Thought by a man named Jim Holt, um, Albert Einstein, you know, is known for his theory of relativity, and Kurt Godel was a logician and analytic philosopher. Anyway, Jim Holt wrote, Time is nature's way to keep everything from happening all at once. Sounds quite profound, and so you might wonder, Was it Einstein that said this? Was it Godel who said this? Uh, What philosopher said this? Well, in a footnote, which I find rather disturbing, rather than putting in the body of his work, in a footnote, Jim Holt uh, admits it didn't come from Einstein, it didn't come from Godel. It was actually something found written on on the wall in the men's bathroom in a cafe in Austin, Texas. 
My question is, why a footnote? Why not admit? For the next few weeks, I don't know how long, we will examine the matter of time and the issues that come with it. What does the scriptures tell us about time? What are the different visions of time that we see around us? What the culture around us says about time? And, most importantly, what are we supposed to do about it? It's the so what, if you wish, of the matter. Where to begin? Well, another philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein, late 19th, early 20th century, said that if you want to understand a system, you have to be outside the system. That if you're inside the system, you really cannot get a good grasp of what it is. So if you want to know what the meaning of life is, the world, history, or time, if you stay only within those parameters, you're really going to have an incomplete picture. You need something that is from outside that will give you insight. The mystery of time will always be insoluble if we look only from within time itself. So, in answering the question, where do we begin? Let's start at the beginning. The Bible begins in Genesis 1-1 with the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then a few verses later, in verse number 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And here we have the first thing that scripture tells us about time. Time is something God created. It is a part of God's creation. The account tells us of the six days of creation and then the seventh day when God ceased from that work of creation. Many people, I would say maybe even Christians, don't realize that the seven-day week is something that God created. Time is, in fact, God's creation. And if time is a creation, then there are certain, there are certain things, certain implications of this. First of all, God is not limited by time. God is the creator, and time is one of his creations. He stands above time. He stands outside of time. He is not bound by it. Um, in the same way that he's not bound by any of his creation. We cannot say to God, you can't do that because the laws of nature or the principle, you know, thermodynamics and all that kind of stuff, you have to go by the laws of nature. No, God is the creator. God stands apart from his creation and that is true of time. We'll see more on this as we go along. Secondly, since time is something created, it is not infinite. That is to say, it is limited. Only God is infinite. And since time is something he created, it has a beginning and it has an end. Thirdly, time is not only limited, it is limiting. In the same way that creation limits us, I cannot walk through a wall of cement or even of wood. I am limited by that. Okay. Time also limits us as well. We cannot move backward or forward in time, though that is the stuff of much human imagination. People see time as a continuum. Wouldn't it be great if we could go back in time or maybe go forward in time? No. Time limits us. The reality is we are stuck, if that's the right word, in the present. Memory connects us to the past 
and imagination to the future. But the reality is we live here and now in the present. The fourth thing is that time has been affected by the fall. Not only is it something God created, it has been affected by the fall. And now it has become a burden. It is frustrating. By the way, Adam and Eve, they were limited even before they sinned. Okay, They were in the garden and there was evening, there was morning, there were days, there were nights. Um, they were creatures and to be creature is to be limited. Just a side note, when we went through the series on memory, we looked at the reality of dependence. As human beings, we are completely dependent upon God. There's nothing we have that has not been given to us. We are radically dependent, but we don't want to be. We want to be independent. And I would say in some ways we want to be independent of time. In the West, people talk about freedom. They talk about autonomy. I can do what I want. You're not the boss of me. They talk about individualism. But the reality is we are dependent upon one another and ultimately we are dependent upon God. We are creatures created by God. Our text today is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I think a very familiar passage. But as I read it, there's something quite wonderful about it, but at the same time, something quite confining about it. It almost sounds like a prison. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. A few verses later, if you look at verse number 11, uh, verse 10, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. That's the fallenness of time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There is a saying that youth is wasted on the young. Or as someone else put it, youth is a wonderful thing. What a crime to waste it on children. When you have the energy to accomplish something, you have the ambition to do so, you lack the wisdom or the understanding to know what you should do or exactly what you are to do. When you have the, the wisdom, the understanding, this is what should be done, then you lack the energy because now you are in middle age or older age. I remember Mike Griarte told, told me many years ago, he said that when it came to fine food, when you're young, you can't afford it. And when you get older and you can't afford it, your taste buds aren't as sensitive as they used to be. Somehow, there seems to be this limiting quality of time. It almost seems to be a prison of sorts. And yet... In verse number 10, or verse number 11, 
as with all of a fallen creation, there is still beauty. There is still beauty. Okay. Os Guinness put it this way, Born into the world, we are each given a short life to live. But nature and the world around us do not by themselves inform us of the rhyme and reason to life. That's why you need some from outside. And as we look around, there is no obvious meaning to things that things as they are. We can see both beauty and brokenness, disasters and serendipities, random acts of cruelty as well as kindness, and always endings, endings, endings. The next thing we see about time as something that is created is that it is redeemable. That is, it is the arena of redemption. And Sunday, the first day of the week, is proof of the redemption that is to come, that the work of redemption has begun. Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. So, we begin by saying that time is something that God created. But there's something unique about time. It is different from the rest of creation. Because unlike other things that are created, we cannot shape or reshape time. We can manage it, we can manage our time well, or or fritter it away, but we cannot shape or reshape it. In the material world, you can create or recreate things from God's creation. Let's say you find a tree, you cut it down, you can make it into boards and make a bookshelf or make a wall in a house, uh, a work of art perhaps. Um, You can make paper. And it goes on and on. You can take something that God has created and you can recreate it. That's simply not possible with time. We can use it well or badly, but we can't make it into something else. In the material world, interestingly enough, if you think about it, one can occupy a particular place of creation exclusively. That is, where I am standing right now, no one else can stand at the same time. You can stand next to me, but you can't stand in this place. But no one occupies time exclusively. I can't say this, this minute is mine, or this hour is mine. We all occupy it at the same time. We can't conquer time. It does not lie there for us to do with it as we will. It's never stationary. It's always moving and always in one direction. It's headed to the future. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, Man transcends space, and time transcends man. I'm not sure that we transcend space, but we, do, we are to have dominion over God's creation, but not over time. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 1, verse 4, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And time binds us all. It limits us all. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, if you're a hero, if you're a villain, if you're famous or no one knows who you are, all human life is bound. It has always been, and until Jesus returns, it always will be. In this first sermon on the series, I want us to consider various views of time and history. Three in particular, we'll only look at two today, and the third one, the Lord willing, next week. These are dominant views. This is what we see around us in the culture. We hear it 
I find it in literature and movies. Uh, three different views, the cyclical view, the covenantal view, and the chronological view. We'll let the, look at the cyclical and the covenantal today. The cyclical view of time. It concludes that even though life is short, we are not here only once, or so this view tells us. It presents an entirely different view of existence based on the assumption that we are not here only one time. It holds that time repeats itself. It is cyclical, and so is history. I want to be careful when I say time repeats itself. That's not exactly, you don't have the same thing happening over and over again, like in the movie Groundhog Day. Um, but you, there is some sort of repetition and that if you come into this life and you die, then you will be reborn into another life, perhaps another life form. But there is this repetition. Um, Nietzsche called it eternal recurrence. Just keep coming back. You keep coming back. So that everyone experiences only one or experiences successive reincarnations one at a time. Everything comes back to the place from which it began. And the only hope for freedom is to somehow escape out of that cycle of being born over and over and over again. This view starts with observations and sees time as a wheel, a wheel that turns and turns and turns. Now, the immediate appeal, and I think why some people hold to this, is that it seems to reflect what we find in nature, in the natural world around us. The planets revolve around the sun. The seasons of the year come and go. Spring leads to summer, summer to autumn, autumn to winter, then winter to spring, and then again, spring to summer, and so it goes. In the same way, when it rains, the clouds bring rain, the water washes out to rivers, to the ocean, they evaporate, clouds are formed, and then it rains, and you have the whole cycle happening all over again. And so this seems to make sense of life, what we see around us. But in this view, time is a wheel that just keeps going around and around and around. As I said, Nietzsche calls it eternal recurrence. It just keeps happening over and over again. This is where the idea of karma comes in. And ethics is based on karma, that if you did something bad in this life, then in the next life you're going to suffer as a result of that. History is going nowhere. It certainly has no purpose. I could go on and on about this, but what are the consequences if you hold to this view of time? Well, there are a number. I'll just mention one. I think the most important is that what we do has no significance. Our actions have no significance. If history is just a wheel and each of us is returning to where we started out, um, then why should we change anything? Why should there be any reform? It is, you can't escape the wheel. The wheel will simply go around and around. There's no call for justice. If something bad happens to someone, you say, well, we need to do something about that. Well, no, maybe that's just because in their last life they did something bad and they're just getting their karma back. Some observations about this view of time. While we may have the desire to live our lives over again, 
And you look back at the mistakes that you've made and it's like, boy, if I had that to do over again. That's not what this view teaches. Okay. This view says that you will come back, perhaps not even as a human being, but you will come back and then hopefully somewhere down the line you will come back. But you'll have no memory of your previous incarnations. As much as we might want to live our lives over again, even the bad things that we did have significance. Our choices have significance. We should not desire to simply have a do-over. What we should desire is redemption. Second observation is that this view of time is basically something you find in Hinduism and Buddhism, which is basically a form of reformed Hinduism. But in reality, in the ancient world, this is what most people held. Aristotle said, coming to be and passing away, as we have said, will always be continuous and will never fail. The Greeks held to reincarnation, that you will just simply keep coming back over and over again. Thirdly, I would say that this view is not particularly popular among many in our cultures, but I would argue for wrong reasons. You know, the famous YOLO, Y-O-L-O, you only live once, becomes an excuse to do whatever you want to do because you're not going to have a chance again. So people would say, yeah, I, I don't hold to the cyclical view, but for entirely different or for wrong reasons. And then just lastly, an observation. Um, I actually stuck it in my notes at the last minute. Um, consider what this view says about the coming of Jesus into the world. The incarnation. Well, what is the incarnation in this view? If it's, it's only another form of reincarnation. That it's not particularly significant, um, but in fact it is. Okay, the cyclical view. Now let's look at the covenantal or the biblical view of time. First of all, I would say that many people in the West, even though they're not Christians or believers, fail to recognize how radical this view is and how that in many ways they hold to it even though they may not be believers. They fail to recognize how radical this view as presented by scripture and by the Jewish people in the Old Testament is. There are three faiths, three religions that are seen as Abrahamic. That is, they see Abraham as the beginning point for Judaism, for Christianity, and for Islam. And in each of these, they see time quite differently than the cyclical view. And the biggest difference is the Abrahamic view is seen as the result of revelation versus reflection. In other words, the cyclical view is somebody sitting and saying, boy, you know how these things just seem to go in cycles. It's a circle of life. You know, it just seems to go around and around. That must be what human existence is all about. The Abrahamic view is that God revealed himself to Abraham and to his descendants. Some years ago, I attended a conference in Bali. It's a South and Southeast Asian study of religion conference. And I was in between sessions, I was talking to a, one of the participants, and I don't even remember who it was or what we were talking about. But then all of a sudden, I like, excuse me, I've got to go to the next session because this guy's going to speak, and he always says something controversial. So I'm like, okay. So I went with him. It was a man from India. And one of his major points was, 
that Indian religions are superior, that Hinduism and Buddhism are superior to those that come from the Middle East, that is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And the reason is that those from the Middle East required revelation, and those from India did not. I felt like standing up and saying, you're exactly right. We are not sufficient on our own. We look to someone who created us, someone outside the system, who can tell us what everything is about. The major difference between the Christian view and the Buddhist view, the Hindu view, is that we rely on revelation. God has revealed the truth to us. He created time. So who better to tell us about time? Can we figure it out from within the environment of time? No. It only comes from revelation. In this view, time is both linear, it's going somewhere, and it is covenantal. We will see this in the weeks to come. The truth behind this view is that God is free. He is sovereign and he is free. And human beings who are made in his image and in his likeness are also free. We are free with a freedom that is really beyond our comprehension. Because how can God be in control of everything and I still have freedom and my choices have significance? It is, I think, beyond our comprehension. But what we have is precious. It is precious and unique among all the life forms found on this planet. The implications of this view are many, but let's begin with this one. Time has meaning. Time and history have meaning. The two truths of God's sovereignty and human freedom tell us that time and history are going somewhere and they have significance. Each human being is not only significant and unique in himself or herself, but we have a unique part to play in our lives, in our generation, but also in the whole story of human history. By contrast, the Hindu view, the Buddhist view, is that this is an illusion. Time is an illusion, and therefore, as an illusion, it is meaningless. It has no meaning. I tell my students in the first uh, lecture that I always give in my courses on worldview, uh, that there are ten questions that if you answer these, it prov provides a framework of how you view the world. And the last one is, what is the nature of history? That in the past, I heard a statement by Aldous Huxley. He stated that when he came to see history as meaningless, he felt tremendously liberated. And as I tell my students, I'm like, oh my goodness, I just spent all these years getting a PhD in something that is meaningless. If history has no meaning... But how did he get to that point? Part of it was a cyclical view of things, but also with modernity. Modernity sees history as really not having any particular meaning and not having any moral purpose. It has no goal, no purpose. And so what you find modern people doing and now postmodern people doing is like, history only has the meaning that I give it. Well, you're like the fish in the water. You're the last person we should ask to assign meaning to history. 
The cyclical view sees freedom as escape from history. The covenantal view sees history, or sees freedom as history with responsibility. God has put me here at this time in the story of history for a particular purpose. And it's not necessarily to be famous. I may come and go and very few people know that I've been here. Um, what I may accomplish may be by the world standards insignificant but it is God who determines those things and so you find God's people throughout history fighting for justice fighting for peace for freedom all of this goes back to the view of God, which is radically different than what we find in paganism. What we find in scripture is that God is completely different from all pagan conceptions of the gods. He's not a superman. He's not a demigod, you know, like a really strong human, almost godlike. He's not a projection of us, of our minds. He's not the personification of forces like the sun or a storm, a wind or a river like the Nile. He's not just another name for the cosmos. This is a pantheistic view that we're all part of God. No, God is revealed in two particular ways in scripture. That first of all, he is transcendent. He is above creation. He's the creator, so he's outside of creation. He is outside and he is over all and therefore he is free. He's not bound by the creation. It's really important. But then secondly, he is passionately, personally engaged with his creation. See, some people would like to imagine that God is this, this great person outside of creation, but he really doesn't care about us. And so we, we pray to him to somehow do something for us. The fact is he is always engaged with his creation he loves and believes in human beings made in his image and in his likeness. I would say that he loves us and believes in us more than we love or believe in ourselves. This is critical to having a correct view of time. God is personal. God is engaged in history and with humanity. And he is free to act. He is over all and he is free to act. As he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you, should, you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And we are made in the image of the creator. The one who has existence. The one who has freedom. We are responsible. That's scary. But we are responsible. We are free. We are capable of choice. Moses told Israel right before his death. I have set before you life and death. Blessings and curses. Now choose life. In other words. You, you must choose. It's not simply that you can choose, though that's implied. 
but you must choose. We are exceptional. We are unique in God's creation. We have a consciousness that animals do not have, both a self-consciousness, that we're aware of ourselves, but also a consciousness that is aware of time. Animals are driven by instinct, but we are made in the image of God. And so we can, in some ways, stand back and view time. Can look at the remote past, consider the present, the immediate present, but also the, dis- also the distant future. All the while being stuck in the present moment. We can, in fact, have a vision of the past and of the future. And as humans who are made in the image of God, we are created with the freedom to do so. This depends on three faculties or three abilities that we have. How, do we, how can we think of the past? Well, we have the gift of memory, which we've seen in an earlier series. Our awareness of time includes our memory of the past. And we can bring those memories into play as we make decisions now. Our awareness of time includes imagination and vision of the future, of what we would like to see happen. And that informs our actions now. If we say, tomorrow, this is what I want to do, through your imagination, you say, this is what I want to do, it informs the choices that you make now. But then the third faculty, it's memory, imagination, and the third is will. This expresses the freedom that we have. It allows us to have a consciousness of the past and to look to the future with imagination. The culture in which we live, and we will see this, the Lord willing, next Sunday, is obsessed with the future and really quite impatient with the past. As a result, the gift of memory has been cast aside. The fact that we can remember what has been done in the past um, seems to have been set aside. In many universities in this country now, uh, history is no longer a required subject. You can get a degree without taking one course in history. And as a history professor, I find that appalling. But as a Christian, I also find this deeply troubling and really quite sad because it means that people do not develop the ability to remember the past and help them make decisions now and in the future. People want to talk about the future. We even have people who are called futurists. Well, we are here in this moment now. There's a time for everything. But here we are right now. This is where God has put us. The Lord willing, we will look at this more in the weeks to come. Human life is hemmed in by the reality of three things. Mortality, we are all going to die. Brevity, our lives are much shorter than we would like. And fragility, we are quite, quite fragile. The challenge for us as God's people having a correct view of time is to know what to do about it. If we have a biblical view of time, how should that change? How should that inform our actions? 
I would suggest to you that in this series we will see that an understanding of a biblical view of time is critical for us to know how to make the most of our time here on earth. God has put each one of us here on this planet at this time. Not a hundred years ago, not a thousand years ago. We are here right now. God knows what he's doing. We need to figure out, looking at scripture, what is it that scripture says about time? What does God say about time? And how is that to shape our actions and guide our decisions? And the Lord willing, we will see that in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, here we are together on a Sunday, the first day of a week. We see that time is something you have created with its beauty and its burden. More than that, that we have significance. You've put us here at a particular place, a particular time. Whether the world ever knows who we are, whether we are rich or poor, in good health or poor health, we have significance. We are made in your image and you love us. But in a world that seems to rush by, really have no conception of you or of time as you reveal it, I think we get sucked into that, into the rat race. And we lose sight of what is really important. I ask that in the weeks to come we would have a better understanding that you would guide me as I prepare sermons, guide my thoughts. We would have a good understanding. And as Paul puts it, we would redeem the time. Thank you for bringing us together today. May we have a sense of your presence with us all through this week. And as we remember specific occasions, birthdays, anniversaries, may we be grateful and know that you love us deeply. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.